It's Jared. So with the vice presidential debate being this past week and election day approaching very, very quickly, we thought we were going to change things up a little bit for today's episode. So in California, the referendums and initiatives that people vote on are called propositions. Elsewhere, they're called amendments or they might be called propositions. But basically, they are one of three things. They're either something that the populace got enough signatures to put on the ballot. It is something that needs to be approved by the voters. That was a piece of legislation passed in California or anything that deals with a constitutional amendment in California needs to be ratified by voters. But that's all technical. Really, propositions in California are a major part of every election cycle. This year, there are 12, which is way more than Missouri, where I currently am, which only has two. So for all those people who aren't in California, I really urge you to stay and listen to this episode. Not because it will help your voting, but rather because the topics that are on this year's round of propositions in California are really, really interesting. So they get at a lot of these core issues in a way that I think is unique because you get to talk about the solutions, right? You don't talk about the problem. You talk about what are the solutions on the table that voters have to choose from right now. And I know some of you have probably already voted, right? In a year that mail-in voting is really big, it would make sense that a lot of ballots are already in. So this might seem too little too late. But again, have a listen because This is going to be a really, really good episode that breaks down a lot of different topics, but can help you make informed decisions in elections going forward. For today's episode, I'm going to be joined by a few familiar faces and a few new ones. We're going to have a panel of people discussing all the different propositions. In addition to myself and Adam Hussein, who is the producer and editor of Contestant, if you don't know by now, we're going to be joined by Jackson Downey, who did an episode on the wealth tax for us, Ari Stern, who did the episode on Title IX, and Thomas Schramm, a great friend of all of ours who can provide some really unique insight as well. So if you need help making a decision for the ballot or you simply want to learn about all these cool topics from rent control to split roll to who knows what, stay tuned. Hi, Ari. Hi, Jackson. Hi, Adam. Hi, Thomas. Hi there. Hello. Hey, Jared. I'm so glad you're all here. I think this is going to be a great conversation. One, because for the listeners who don't know, we have these types of conversations for fun that aren't recorded. And I feel like it's a good peek for a lot of people to see what our conversations are normally like. But also the election is around the corner. So no better time to learn about the props if you haven't filled out your ballot already. Or even if you have, you'll learn something new, I promise. So we're going to get right into it then. The first proposition is Prop 14. I'll just give a brief overview on this one because it's not super complex or debated on too much. But Prop 14 authorizes around $5 billion in bonds for stem cell research. For all the science people out there, please don't get on me when I say this incorrectly. But stem cell research has kind of been this topic over the past 10 years that's garnered a little bit of importance because stem cells were kind of viewed at one point as like this magical medication that if you have cancer or something like that, if you had grown and saved your stem cells, it can kind of replenish your own body in this sense. And this is the second time a bond measure for stem cell research has come up. So the kind of critical question for voters here is, do you think that bonds should be authorized from the state for this purpose? And for anyone who like isn't super clear, I won't go into too much of a descriptor here, but bonds are debt that 
people buy so the government can fund a project now and the government pays those people back with interest down the road. So you're basically saying, should the government take on debt for stem cell research? That's kind of the ultimate question here. There's not too much more than that. So without further ado, let's get into our first topic that we are going to have a big, robust conversation on, which is Prop 15. Jackson, if you could give us a little bit of background on what Prop 15 is and more importantly, kind of what Prop 13 was, because that's really where the debate starts. Absolutely. So Prop 15, like Jared said, is ultimately a referendum on whether or not we should uphold a law called Prop 13 that was passed during the tax revolution in 1978. So right during the late 1970s and the early 80s, like there was this red wave throughout the country where everyone was just absolutely hating on taxes. And one of the ways that that manifested in California was the passage of a ballot proposition, Prop 13. And basically what it did is it capped property taxes to a 1% increase every year. So these are commercial properties that are owned mostly by huge corporations. Like the best example of this is in Silicon Valley, right? Before we had the invention of the iPhone and Apple and Microsoft and all of these huge companies blowing up, Silicon Valley really didn't have very much value. So capping these property taxes didn't really matter. But now we're at a place where the value of all of this property has skyrocketed ridiculously. And the passage of Prop 13 has essentially made it so that companies who owned this land in 1978 are paying fundamentally the exact same amount of taxes as they they did when they bought it. So forgetting inflation, forgetting the increase in value, and what ultimately all of this funding is what goes to schools, what goes to fix roads. And that's why this proposition is largely referred to as schools and communities first. You'll hear people say, oh, the schools and communities first proposition. Because ultimately, what it seeks to do is remove that cap on property taxes so that corporations start to pay their fair share in contributing into the education systems and communities. Exactly. That's a perfect kind of background on where we are now. For anyone who wasn't super clear, Prop 15, it's also known as split rule. And I'll let Ari get into that a little bit more. That's exactly what it does. But the distinction Jackson makes between the corporate properties and residential properties is a critical point to understand here. So Ari, if you want to take us a little bit into what split rule is and what Prop 15 is doing to kind of change the history around Prop 13. So Prop 15 is called split roll because it would split the tax roll between commercial properties and personal properties. So this means that people who are homeowners and people who own farms and small businesses are actually exempt from what Prop 15 would do. So they would not be impacted by Prop 15. And Prop 15 would largely impact larger businesses. And this has garnered a lot of support because on the surface, it seems pretty self-explanatory. You're going after large corporations. It'll barely make a dent in you know, their profit and it will significantly increase funding to community colleges, government localities, and public schools. So it's garnered a lot of support for those reasons because rather than paying the property taxes that the commercial property owners would have paid when they first bought it, let's say their property increases in price over 10 years, they're getting 10 years worth of tax breaks. Every year they own the property and it increases in price, they're getting a larger tax break. However, opponents say that this actually is not just affecting these large corporations and it kind of trickles down. So let's say someone 
who owns a strip mall and has that commercial property has to pay a lot more in taxes. And they have small business owners filling up this strip mall. The opponents will say that, you know, they're going to want to lessen the burden of this huge tax increase on themselves. So they're going to start raising rent. And then the tenants will have to either pay more or will be just entirely put out of business. And then for those who do stay and have to pay more, prices will increase, making things less affordable. So it definitely is a double-edged sword. And there are two sides to this that make a lot of sense. Some of the supporters, though, are Joe Biden, Gavin Newsom, Bernie Sanders, Kamala Harris. It basically has the entire backing of a lot of people who are established in the Democratic Party and actually the California Democratic Party itself, in addition to the Chan Zuckerberg Association and big organizations do support this. Just, I think, one other thing to add to ease the concern about small businesses being impacted is there's an exemption for all property worth less than $3 million. So what we're talking about here, like the corporations that are being targeted by Prop 15 are incredibly wealthy, upwards of $3 million simply in their property taxes, not in whatever they're bringing in in revenue, income, right? So this really, I see it is about shifting the burden, right? Are we putting the burden to fund our schools and our communities on people in their homes or on corporations who've basically been getting a lopsided unfair tax system for the past four decades? Yeah, I mean, I think, Jackson, as you had kind of alluded to, the tax revolution that kind of began in the Reagan years and a little bit prior was always framed as like, look, we need to protect the old homeowners, right? That was kind of the selling line. If you look at some of the original ads back in the 70s for Prop 13, is that, look, like this little old grandma is going to get priced out of her house because she's just not going to be able to afford the property taxes on this extremely valuable piece of land that she inherited back in whatever, 1950. And kind of the unforeseen consequence, I would agree with you, is that corporations who now are in very very valuable areas have kind of been free riding that defense. But I think as Ari does point out, there's a lot of people who own maybe valuable land, and that's kind of all that they own, or that they might just not want to pay it no matter what, even if they are wealthy and kind of pass that down onto consumers and rentees and whatnot. Thomas, Adam, anything you wanted to add here? I just wanted to, I guess, echo what Jackson was saying that shifting the burden about where our funding is coming from. Obviously, education needs to be funded in America. We have underfunded schools, especially in California. So getting some more money from corporations that have had this tax loophole for a long while, always great to put it towards our schools. Yeah. So the bottom line, the only thing you need to remember is that this would allow taxes to continually be raised on corporate properties, but not residential properties. Also, if you have any questions on any of the prompts, you can always email us at info at contestedpolitics.com. And anybody who is here, I can probably speak for them, would be happy to kind of follow up on anything. So moving on now to Prop 16, which is about affirmative action, which is one of the debates that I have a feeling will be around for millennia and has been around for millennia. So we're going to go to Thomas here. Uh, Thomas, could you explain what Prop 16 is? And just like the last one, Prop 15, what is it undoing as in Prop 209? Yeah, so Prop 16 is kind of cut and dry. It's reinstating affirmative action. So in 1996, California banned affirmative action under Governor Pete Wilson, a Republican governor. And the sort of approach to that whole conflict was the idea that they wanted to be colorblind when addressing college admissions and sort of government positions 
But as we know today, obviously that's not the best approach because it minimizes disparities between communities, mainly marginalized communities. So Prop 16 basically allows universities and government offices to once again sort of factor in parts of identity. So whether that be race, gender, ethnicity, all of that, that's factored in now to hiring and possible admissions to universities. And so a lot of what spurred this too is just the sheer disparity between certain communities. So if you look at how the Asian community is actually like within the UC system, 40% of UC student population is Asian, but only 15% of the California population is Asian compared to 60% of high school graduates or high school enrollments being black and Hispanic and only 28% of UC admits being black or Hispanic. So just the sheer disparity between these two communities has sort of brought this issue up again, along with sort of the increase in focus on sort of racial disparities, but basically it's just going to reinstate affirmative action and allow government offices and universities to factor in parts of identity. Yeah, thank you. As you said, it is somewhat straight to the point here. If you want to look, it kind of lists all of the factors that could be considered in there um, along the lines of race, gender, and so on. Ari, what is kind of the best way to understand the implications of this and the background surrounding it? So I would say the first thing to understanding this is understanding what it's not. This is not a quota system that was made illegal by the United States Supreme Court. I mean, I think that that's a common misconception about affirmative action, that it's setting quotas. And that's not what it is. It's simply kind of taking a look at gender, race, and ethnicity, just like any other part of the application process. Your test score doesn't determine whether you get in, your grades don't determine whether you get in, and your essays don't determine whether you get in. It's all taken together and they try to do a holistic review of your circumstances and your situation. And in my opinion, that can't be done without taking into account things that people also can't control, such as you know race, gender, and ethnicity. So proponents are basically saying that this is about equity and opponents say it's about equality, which is a pretty big debate. And the opponents of Prop 16 are saying any discrimination is a step backward. Any type of law or proposition that would put one group in a situation where they might be benefited purely based on things that they can't control is a form of inequality. And so therefore that is wrong. And opponents also deny that America is rooted in systemic racism. And they say it's basically like a form of kind of just fueling like racial hatred in this country. And supporters are saying, no, that's not at all what this is. It's not about pitting people against each other. It's that we see that there's an inequality in the outcomes of, you know, people going to college, as Thomas said, while Black and Latinx students make up 60% of California's high school population, they only make 28% of students admitted to UC schools. So we see a disparity here. And it's simply about making sure that race and gender and ethnicity are taken into account, because they do play a factor. And when affirmative action was ended, we saw the admit rates of Black, Latinx, and Native American students plummet far more than white and Asian students. And that's also something that is a little bit contentious with this one, that the people who would be, you know, disproportionately, like their enrollment would fall is Asian students. And so that's something that people who are against this are saying that um, it's not fair to Asian students. Now, this actually has been backed by University of California, Gavin Newsom, 
again, the whole list of, you know, like the 24 Democratic candidates who ran for president, not all of them, but there's a long list of pretty established people who support this. And the Republican Party of California is actually against Prop 16. Thank you. So yeah, it's kind of straight down the line, as I said, affirmative action is a a debate that has been both played out in the courts and legislatures. And I think we'll be continued to play out regardless of the outcome of Prop 16. But yeah, for anyone who really isn't aware what affirmative action is, this conversation might have gone over your head, but don't worry about it because you can find a lot of really helpful videos on what that is. But I think as Thomas pointed out, a lot of the stats kind of speak for themselves and that affirmative action has kind of been the long prescribed solution to it. So thank you all for that. We're now going to move on to Proposition 17. So we're making our way there slowly and surely. Prop 17, in its most basic sense, concerns felon voting rights. For a lot of people who have kind of been involved in politics, Florida has kind of been a test case for this. And I'm just Jackson's nodded at me here. A lot of people, as I said, who have been kind of politically involved have seen Florida as this great experiment regarding this. So without further ado, Ari, we're heading back to you for this one. Can you explain basically what Prop 17 is? Sure. Prop 17 is essentially allowing parolees to vote and actually run for office if they are registered to vote and haven't been convicted of perjury or bribery, because obviously that would be a conflict of interest in a public office. But this is different than the current law because parolees are not able to vote in California. However, this isn't some strange foreign thing that California would be the first to do because 16 states and the District of Columbia actually currently allow people who have finished their sentences to vote. And Vermont and Maine actually let people vote while still in prison. And this isn't going that far, but it's a step towards letting people who have been convicted and are finished their sentence, but are still on parole, the ability to vote. Yeah, I think as almost all of us would agree, enfranchisement is one of the issues that I think continually defines American relations with certain groups and whatnot, like who is enfranchised and who is not, is usually a good telltale sign of who's being valued in society. Not to bias that one way or another, but that's kind of, I think, a point of history to keep in mind. Adam, let's give the lowdown on all the details and who's backing Prop 17. All right. Well, thank you, Ari, for the brief overview. Currently, Prop 17 is backed by a variety of California State Assembly members. Some of the bigger people that back this are U.S. Senator Kamala Harris and Secretary of State of California, Alex Padilla, who runs our elections. ACLU, Brennan Center for Justice, League of Women Voters, all big voting rights organizations also support this prop. So overall, I mean, all the authorities on voting rights seem to have their stamp of approval on this one. Just wanted to add a couple points on why I personally think parolees should be allowed to vote. Parolees have re-entered society, right? A lot of them are working a job. They're paying their taxes. They're with their families. They're members of their community. So if they're doing all of those things right, I don't think we should deny them the right to vote. And then on top of that, one of the main things that leads to recidivism, like having a second conviction going back is being disjointed from society once you come out of prison. So letting people re-immerse themselves into society as much as possible, including within our governmental system, within their right to vote, that's an easy way to keep people part of society and kind of on track to being a model citizen after they come out of prison. Yeah, I also just want to echo what Adam was saying. And I think it fits really nicely into something we've been talking about in our government class which is the whole idea of bowling alone and Robert Putnam and social capital, right? And 
how civic engagement, making people invested in the government and the welfare of society as a whole, ultimately contributes to a re-entry into society. So getting anyone we can invested in politics and giving them the opportunity to participate is a huge net good, not just for them, but for all of us in community building. I think you also need to take a look at it through like the lens of race too, because in California, over 60% of felons are both black and Latino. And so the fact that it's become sort of a form of systemic racism within California and continued to perpetuate some form of discrimination against communities of color, I think is also important to note because now you're suppressing the vote of major communities in California, communities who are basically responsible for a lot of the economic and future sort of output of California. And so the fact that you're repressing their votes through this system, I think is unfair. Yeah, all amazing points there. I just want to kind of define some of the words that were thrown out there because that was a good amount of stuff there. Adam mentioned recidivism. That's probably a conversation for another episode that I would love to have. But basically, that is the rate at which you would re-enter prison or the criminal justice system after your first conviction. And so I think that was a good point brought there. And these are all good points. I'll make the argument against it, even though I would pretty much agree with everything that's been said, just for anyone who's still on the fence about it. Basically, the argument is that, right, criminals, one way or another, breach kind of the well-being of society. And the idea is that, well, you shouldn't really have a voice then in changing society if you've kind of breached a violation that we kind of all agree on. Again, not sure it's the best argument. I would even say a lot of people have kind of come out in support of this especially evidenced by the point that a lot of states have tried this and really seen no major repercussions from it. I think that's the key point is it's been tried and tested. So this is kind of one that we're all in agreement for, big yes. But at the same time, if you have your own reservations or concerns, we'd love to hear them. Always can email us. I think it could all change our mind in that way. So now we're going to move on to Prop 18. Prop 18 is a little bit of a special one because everyone here at one point or another did some work for Prop 18. So that's a big disclaimer here. We were all involved in the passing of a similar bill that kind of became this bill. So you're not going to hear a lot of naysayers here. We're also all young people, some of us still 17. So without further ado, I'll let everyone kind of go in a round table about what this is. But basically, I'll give the brief overview and then I want to let the rest of you do all the talking here. Prop 18 would allow 17-year-olds who are going to be 18 by the general election vote in the primary. This is something that's in a lot of different states already. In fact, kind of California's behind the curve on this one a little bit. But in short, if you're going to be 17 at the primary, but you'll be 18 by the general election, you'll be allowed to vote in the primary. It's very straightforward. But for why are we going to do it? Let's go to Thomas first. So I think the significance is not necessarily a prop itself, but what it means for the future. Like, obviously, it's a step towards lowering the voting age, and that's really our end goal. So I know the four of us have at least worked, the five of us have worked to lower the voting age to 16. Unfortunately, ACA 8 did not make it through because it sort of eventually turned into Prop 18. But our goal is to lower the voting age to 17 and then to 16. So the fact that we're able to create an opportunity for students who are going to be 17 during the primary to vote in the election, I think is a great step forward. And it really opens the door for future legislation to allow us to lower the voting age to 16. Adam, why is he right? And why is he even more right? I think the the angle I'll use here is kind of the perceptual impact, a term that comes from debate world, but very, very relevant for this proposition. The perceptual impact here is young people can be involved in politics in a responsible way. You signal to a bunch of people that are against letting young people vote that, hey, you know, we can make a responsible choice. 
we are civically engaged and it's kind of a test run, if you say, and I don't see this test run going badly at all. So hopefully eventually we'll be able to lower the voting age in totality to 17. So a good step towards that. And then I'll actually kind of piggyback off Adam real quick in the sense that a lot of evidence specifically, I'm going to butcher his name, unfortunately, but Professor Bapu Vayata, I think who's out of UC Davis, who I'm going to probably talk to another point. So look for an episode on that if I can ever get in contact with him, basically did a whole study that says 16, 17 year olds often outvote almost every other age group besides elderly people. So for a lot of people who are concerned that the voter rate is really low right now among young people, it's a very fair concern, but that's not due to lack of care and lack of civic engagement a lot of the time. It's just due to circumstance. So I think, as Adam said, this is the great experiment here. Like, this is a chance that you're going to afford young people to really vote in high numbers. And I think that's exactly what will happen. Jackson, am I wrong? No, I, I think you're very right, Jared. I think the one thing that's really important to mention here is, you know, Ari and I are probably going to disagree on this, but I'm not a fan of compromise. And this is so the first baby, baby step. And as much as I'm excited for Prop 18 to pass, and I strongly urge all of you to vote yes, this is like a very minor step in the direction of ultimately lowering the voting age to 16 on a national level. And I think it's worth making the case for, you know, lowering the voting age in general, not just this one tiny like technical change, but we're not voting. Americans aren't voting. Young people aren't voting. And because young people aren't voting in their early, they're not voting for the rest of their lives. So we're living in a world in which a third of the population last year decided all of Congress. So I guess I'll just make the case for lowering the voting age, you know, in general, the number one priorities of all of us in our work with a nonprofit organization called I am a teen voter, which works to increase youth civic engagement is to get every single eligible teenager to vote in their very first election. You know, we, there's so many studies, a lot from the professor that Jared mentioned, that say if people just vote in their first eligible election, they're 50% more likely to be voters for a lifetime, right? 18 is arguably the worst time to get people started. They're either moving out of their homes, they're going to college out of state where they don't know how to get an absentee ballot. In some way, shape, or form, they're getting their first full-time job and don't have time to go to the polls on election day. Something turbulent is going on at the age of 18. If we can simply push that time a little bit back, when there's arguably no difference between the knowledge of a 16-year-old and 18-year-old, to allow them to cast their vote when they're in the comfort of their parents' home, going to high school, enrolled in a government class, then ultimately people will cast their first vote and continue to do so for the rest of their lives. And this is ultimately going to lead to a change in all of democracy, where from this generation onward, we're going to see record amounts of voter turnout that will improve everything from the top of the ballot to the bottom. Ari, any final words? Yeah, so I would just like to kind of go over the opposition because I think people deserve to hear it. And then I kind of have you know, views on why that opposition might not necessarily hold true. So the opposition would say that, you know, biologically, the brains of a 17-year-old are not fully developed and they're not ready to vote. And while they're not fully developed, 
they're developed in the ways that you need to be able to vote. So that's the distinction between cold and hot cognition. So hot cognition is, you know, making a decision right off the bat on the fly, and that's not formed until your 20s. But cold cognition is the ability to take material, look at it, process it, and then form a decision based on that. And that's the muscle that is what voting is. And so this is actually formed at the age of 16. So the argument that the brain isn't fully developed at this age doesn't really hold true when talking about voting, and that can be corroborated by scientists. And then there's the idea that high schoolers will be influenced by teachers and parents, stuff like that. And I would argue that you're never in a point in your life when you aren't being influenced by someone. You know, like a magical switch doesn't shut off when you turn 18. Some 18-year-olds, first of all, are still in high school. And then also anyone who goes into higher education still has teachers. And just, you know, as people grow up, you're always going to have, you know, a boss, parent, someone who's going to want you to do one thing or another. And the great thing about our elections is that, you know, people aren't watching us in the election box. You have the autonomy to vote how you want. So I think that, you know, voting at 17, it not only makes sense scientifically, but also I think just the arguments don't really hold up against it. Yeah. If you can't tell, we're all pretty in favor of this one. And if you really want a kind of a more convincing case, if this didn't convince you already, please check out I'm a Teen Voters website. They got all the great resources for young people wanting to get civically engaged. So head there. It's actually linked on our website as well under the resources tab. So You can just go to our website and then go to theirs. So moving on to Proposition 19. This is another one of those kind of dry ones that I'll just do a very brief overview for. One, for the sake of time, and two, I just don't think it's that interesting. Although Jackson disagrees with me. He finds tax policy riveting. But Prop 19 does a few things with tax assessments. And tax assessments are basically the amount of money you have to pay on a given property due to market value, due to a kind of a whole bunch of assessments of it. I really don't know how to say it any better than that in the sense that it's the amount of money you have to pay given the piece of property you own at a time that is assessed given the market rate. And what Prop 19 will do is it freezes that rate in certain cases and doesn't freeze it in others. So in short, what it would do is it allows people who own a home to transfer it anywhere into the state at that same rate. So say I get assessed a 10% tax rate on a given property or a dollar amount. I'm not quite sure how that works, to be frankly honest with you. Say it's $10 on a piece of property I have to pay, and then I move to Silicon Valley, as Jackson was saying. This would allow you to also pay that $10 assessment on that new piece of property you got. It also carves out exceptions for people with disabilities and who are affected by natural resources, which I find to be kind of the most interesting part of this proposition in the sense that natural wildfires and natural disasters have kind of torn California in the past few years. And there are a lot of people who are going to face some odd tax consequences because of that, specifically because they don't have to build new homes, which will get a new tax assessment. And then the other thing we'll do is it changes how inherited homes are assessed. So you're going to have to get a new assessment if you inherit the home. And that kind of ties into what we were talking about with a Prop 13 earlier in our Prop 15 conversation. That was a lot. It's a lot of tax jargon that is like just really not interesting. But if you are a homeowner and you kind of want to get more insight into exactly what that means for you, there's a few resources around Prop 19 you can find. And I think I'll leave the conversation at that. Moving on, Proposition 20 relates to felony charges. So changing what is considered a felony and what is not considered a felony. Adam, what do we need to know? 
All right. Well, Proposition 20 is all regarding criminal sentencing, parole, and DNA collection. And that's the title of the proposition. It's kind of a hodgepodge of a variety of different criminal sentencing laws and such. So I'll go through some of them right now. So this overall changes how different crimes are going to be sentenced. So it redefines some types of theft and fraud crimes including firearm theft, vehicle theft, and unlawful use of a credit card, those can now be charged as felonies as well. So the legal term here is a wobbler. And what this means is it can be charged as either a misdemeanor or a felony. And right now, they can exclusively be charged as misdemeanor. So you're adding a potential felony charge for those types of crimes. What it also does is It requires people convicted of certain misdemeanors that were classified as wobblers or felonies originally to go through a DNA test. So basically DNA testing for people that have already been convicted and that DNA would be added to federal and state databases. Another part of this proposition also also involves the parole system. So right now, people that are convicted of nonviolent crimes are eligible for parole after they've completed the imprisonment sentence of their longest charge. And this system that they want to change and redefine basically says that you would have to take into additional factors, such as the felon's age, marketable skills, and mental condition when considering if they can or cannot get parole. So making it slightly harder and a slightly more intensive process in order to be eligible for parole. It also would define 51 crimes as violent offenses, which you are not eligible for parole at all. So again, another kind of attack on the parole system and being eligible for parole as a whole. And yeah, sorry, that was a lot, but this proposition is kind of a hodgepodge of a variety of different criminal sentencing laws. Yeah, thank you. It definitely seems kind of like a compilation of a lot of hard-on crime positions. As an average voter, if one of those strikes you as really important, you can definitely read more in it. But in general, the kind of overview is this is a position that is like, let's just take a harder on crime stance, specifically on theft and violent crime. Thomas, am I getting that right? Yeah. You have to look at California prison policy kind of like a pendulum. So in the last 50 years, in the 70s to 90s, it was more tough on crime, sort of lock them up mentality. So they passed a lot of legislation like the three strikes law to make sure that people were stuck in prison for longer periods to ensure that people were deterred from committing crime. But in the more recent years, at least like in the last decade, it's been more of like, not an easy on crime, but more rehabilitation focused, less incarceration focused. And so there was Prop 47 passed about six years ago, and then Prop 52 passed two years ago. Prop 47 changed a lot of the felony laws down to misdemeanors, and Prop 57 sort of created new opportunities for early release. And so now there's this whole mentality that there's no longer that tough on crime pendulum swing. And so there's a sort of movement by the law enforcement, by a lot of those who still want that attitude in California to create a greater pendulum swing back to what it once was. So there's no longer really any motivation for this policy to be instituted or this prop because we've now sort of taken a step forward, actually addressed issues and found ways to rehabilitate inmates and find ways to actually make sure that they're reintegrated into society. 
yeah. Yeah, Thomas, I think that was a really good kind of historical overview of where we were, where we are now. And the only thing I would add is going into the future, right? Like there has been a conversation about anything the past six months. It's about the criminal justice system and specifically the categorization of crimes. So I think this comes at a really timely point in our conversations. And I think it's something that we can consider. And if you've been paying literally any attention to BLM protests and in that conversation, I think this is a really unique proposition to look at. So now skipping along as we do, we are moving on to Proposition 21, which to California voters who have voted in previous elections seems awfully familiar. And that's because it is. In short, it repeals Costa-Hawkins, which is a bill that limits the rent controllability of localities. Basically what it does, currently the state can restrict local cities and counties from enacting rent control measures. This would undo that restriction. This does not add rent control. I'll add that. All it does is allows local counties and cities to enact it if they see fit. Thomas, what am I missing here? So you pretty much covered everything. I think one of the important things to note is that it allows cities and municipalities to pass rent control measures as long as the rental housing is more than 15 years old. They want to make sure that developers still have an opportunity in more recent years to continue developing housing in the region. So there's been sort of measures similar to this, not necessarily rent control, but like rent increase caps. So I know last year, state of California instituted a rent increase cap at around 8%, but this is really like another step towards rent control in the state. You kind of covered it too with the Costa Hawkins, the repeal that was instituted in 1995, but there's not really much else to add. It's also kind of cut and dry. So it's really interesting just to see how two sides approach the issue. I know there's greater concern now over the fact that it's just going to deter developers and builders who are focusing on constructing greater housing units. And California's already in a housing crisis. So we have right now fewer homes than are required. And so obviously we're struggling to find ways to create better opportunities for a lot of the California citizens to continue to find housing in the future. Yeah, thank you. Ari, anything else here? Yeah, so I'm opposed to this proposition simply because rent control has been tried and it doesn't work. Economists overwhelmingly hate rent control. There are a lot of disagreements that economists have and rent control is one thing that they pretty much universally agree it doesn't work and it's it's destined to fail. And I think that why it's so harmful is because if there's a rent control department, then you know the landlord doesn't have an incentive to update that place. So if something breaks, if you know someone wants to paint something a different color, you know, whatever it may be, the quality of homes is going to decrease because there's no market for it. And, you know, landlords will just say like, it's not worth it because I'm not going to get, you know, a return on my investment. Also, it's going to decrease the quantity of houses because if a certain apartment is rent controlled, then the landlord has an incentive to just abandon that and maybe create a single family home or something that wouldn't have the same restrictions on it. So some supporters of instituting this rent control proposition are the California Democratic Party and Bernie Sanders. And then some opponents are the California Seniors Advocates League, Governor Gavin Newsom, and the California Apartment Association. I think something that's also like really interesting to add is that we're kind of approaching the housing crisis the same way we approached energy. We're looking at quick fixes for today, but we're not looking towards the future. And that's really where we messed up on energy too. 
So if we were to institute rent control in California today, obviously we're ensuring quality housing for those who are currently living in either rentals or homes or whatever it may be, but we're sort of deterring all developers from the future. And we don't really have opportunities for future California homeowners to have any opportunity for affordable housing. So we're kind of creating a quick fix for a long-term issue and it's not really gonna yield anything productive. Instead, we're sort of gonna be stepping backwards and we're gonna to have to dig ourselves out of a hole when it comes to the next 15 to 20 years in terms of rising housing costs. Yeah, Jackson, I know you were not as strong as Thomas and Ari on this one. What are your thoughts? So I'm actually for a yes vote on Prop 21. I just wanna make a few points. The first is that regardless of your stance on rent control in general, Right now, we're living in just a really unique time where, especially if you're looking at charts of versus wages and housing prices, wages are stagnating while housing prices are skyrocketing. And this is happening in really specific communities, right? It's happening in Los Angeles. It's happening in San Francisco. It's not happening in the middle of XYZ California, right, that you've never heard of. And I'm really think two things are important here. The first is that during COVID, where we've seen already this wave of mass evictions and we're trying to put it off, the number one concern is to keep families in their homes and to make sure that people have homes to go to, to stay away and social distance. This would allow for the implementation of rent control. But the second point I wanna make is that this doesn't even guarantee rent control. This just says it's allowed to happen. I think we should take away this like blanket policy over the whole state that rent control shouldn't be allowed and just let communities do what they think is best for themselves. So if Los Angeles, which is dealing with arguably the biggest homelessness crisis in all of the country, can start to address it on their own rather than get the capital in Sacramento to put these blanket policies that are the same for Bakersfield, California, and you know the heart of Los Angeles. Yeah, I think you make a good point there in the sense that this isn't guaranteeing rent control and there's different needs across the state. So it's kind of a local control argument there. Needless to say, I think rent control, just like affirmative action, will be a conversation that comes up again and again. I think in the end, where all of us are kind of on the same page that there's a serious housing crisis and problem in California. And I think this is really just a matter of, do you think it's a supply problem in the sense that there's not enough housing? And is that the way to fix? Or is it just kind of setting a price ceiling rather the answer? A conversation to come to another time for sure. Jackson, one more quick thought. And I, I do just want to like adding on to exactly what you brought up, Jared, regardless of your stance on rent control. And I happen to believe that, right, we should empower communities to do what they would like to. But this is by no means the end of the fight against homelessness, right? This is one approach that needs to be done in a much larger fleet, right? Thomas mentioned development of affordable housing, construction of public works, all of that needs to be a part of the larger fight against homelessness. 100% agree. And I think that's a good point to hop off. We are now transitioning into Proposition 22, which if you're looking at the ballot doesn't seem to be the kind of headliner prop, but it has surely become one, especially among economists, political pundits, and basically all of us, this has become a, a one to take note of. So 
Jackson, to you first on Proposition 22. I will add that this one has people all over the aisles on all different sides of this. This is really not one that is a down party line. I know a lot of people on the left who are in favor of it, a lot of people on the right who are in favor of it. It's kind of a really interesting spot because the gig economy, which is what this is all about, and Jackson will kind of dive into this, has been one of these emerging fields in the economy that a lot of people don't know a lot about yet and are really kind of getting their feet wet here. So Jackson, explain what the hell is Prop 22? Absolutely. So I want to start by prefacing with the fact that I am a strong no vote on Prop 22. So take my opinion with a grain of salt, but I will go through a bit of the background. So first of all, when Jared refers to the gig economy, he's talking about app-based employment. That's Uber drivers, Postmates, delivery people, Uber Eats, Grubhub, right? All of these different companies that are now employing a very large number of Californians, but have basically created a new job that we've just never seen before. And the government has never had to regulate before. So a lot of this issue started with a huge California Supreme Court case that in 2018 that's largely referred to as the Dynamex case. Basically, the California Supreme Court ruled that app-based employers like Uber and Postmates were wrongfully classifying their employees as independent contractors instead of full-time employees. And this is really important because being classified as a full-time employee in California guarantees you a lot of really awesome workers' rights, right? Healthcare, job insurance, right? Life insurance if you die on the job, like all of these really important strides in workers' rights. So in response to this, the legislature passes a bill that was signed by Governor Newsom last year called AB5. And AB5 actually starts to provide more framework to explain how, in response to the Dynamex ruling, how we should start to implement these workers' rights and how we should start to classify employees. Between that, the passage of AB5 and now, there have been a bunch of different employee groups and unions who've asked for exemptions, right, to become independent contractors notably photographers, journalists who work as freelance people and want to be independent contractors, not full-time employees. But ultimately, the one group that has repeatedly failed to get this kind of exemption are gig economy app-based employed people. So as a latch, after they lost in the court, after they lost after AB5, Uber, Postmates, all of them have put millions of dollars into this last Hail Mary to basically get back this exemption to make their employees independent contractors as opposed to full-time employees. Thank you. That was a really good overview. And I think it covers a lot of important history on this topic. And as you said, people just don't know what to do here, right? At the end of the day, photographers, refers and freelance journalists to a lot of people have always been independent contractors, even before that word was kind of widely used. I mean, as the sense is they're working on their own and are paid on a per contract basis. That's exactly what that is. But the app-based way in the sense you can just sign up, but you're also part of a company, it really is this gray area. Adam, you are really against Jackson on this one. Not many issues that that's the case. Uh, Tell us why. Well, I first want to correct you there. I'm not a strong yes vote. However, I'm not with Jackson on a strong no. I see some of the concerns that have come up in the gig economy. And I do think that this prop genuinely tries to address those while giving Uber and Lyft and other app-based drivers still the autonomy that they really want. So I want to preface 
what I'm saying here with a survey done. Now, granted, this was done by Uber and it was it was paid for by them, but nonetheless, a poll done by them. They interviewed 730 Uber and Lyft drivers in California in May of this year. And 71% of those drivers said they wanted to remain as independent contractors. So that is a big detail that I wanted to highlight here. I personally don't drive on an app-based service. So I think to some level, I want to give the people who are impacted by this policy a certain level of autonomy and listen to them when considering whether or not I would vote yes or no on this policy. But nonetheless, um, I want to respond to some of the things that Jackson brought up and some of the concerns that he has, the disparities between employment and independent contractors. So one of the major things was healthcare. And within this ballot measure, it says that it would require the companies to provide um, occupational accident insurance to cover at least $1 million in medical expenses and lost income due to injuries, specifically on the job. So this is not a broader healthcare policy, but they are still trying to get worker protections within the hours in which they're working. It also does have death insurance available to driver's spouse or children if a driver unfortunately does die on the job. So there are certain protections that are built into this proposition for the purposes of giving drivers those protections. Again, I'm all for workers' protections and giving everyone a fair wage. That's not what I'm against at all in this proposition. I just think that the flexibility that a lot of these people that use this app as a source of income like that would potentially be stripped away by a passage of this proposition. And one more detail I want to point out, another statistic, the numbers are very important within this proposition. The CEO of Uber, I'm going to butcher this name right now, Dara Kosar Shahi. I apologize, that was not the right pronunciation, but nonetheless, CEO of Uber. She has said that if this proposition doesn't pass, there would only be 26 100,000 available full-time jobs for people to drive on Uber, compared to the current 926,000 drivers. So they would be cutting out three-fourths of the people that are currently using Uber as a source of income. So that's just under a million people out of a job. And that's another concern that I have is Obviously, you want workers' rights and a minimum wage, and you don't want to put that on an ultimatum of either you have no rights in your job or you can't work at all. But the fact that this many people would get cut from a source of income is worrying to me if this proposition doesn't pass. Just in response to just quickly, the last thing that Adam said about this, the Uber CEO threatening to slash jobs, I see that as an empty threat for Uber to basically tell people that she's going to start taking away jobs if they ultimately don't just allow them to keep exploiting their workers. But what I really want to say is that I think ultimately this particular proposition points out one of my biggest frustrations with the whole proposition and ballot measure infrastructure in California, which is this, just that it's so easy to complicate issues, right? So in Prop 22, they list all of these workers' protections that would come. Basically, Prop 22 creates a new type of worker, not an independent contractor, not a full-time employee, but a new way to regulate these gig economy workers. And they list all of these rights that they would end up receiving. And they sound great on paper, but you're trading away a bunch of other rights that they would be entitled to if they were full-time. So I'll just go through a couple that I think are important. 
The proposition says that app-based workers would receive 120% of the minimum wage. So they'd be paid above minimum wage. But what they don't explicitly say is that they're going to stop drivers from being paid for the time they spend waiting. They'll only be paid for engaged time. This means only the amount of time that they actually spend driving the wheel, not waiting to pick someone up, among other things. I saw a stat in the LA Times that said that ultimately these app-based drivers are going to be paid about 80% of what the actual minimum wage is under a world where Proposition 22 is passed. You know, they list out, okay, drivers are going to be reimbursed for every mile they drive and they're going to get 30 cents. The IRS estimates that a mile is worth about 60 cents. So they're getting half of what the government says it's actually worth. Regardless of how you want to look at it, it's so easy for Uber and Postmates and Lyft to send out all of this stuff and complicate the workers' rights that they're already guaranteed. Ultimately, and even if there are some benefits, they're trading away all of the guarantees that are given to full-time workers in exchange for these really minimal, half-thought-out bill of rights that Uber's declaring. First off, on the point of jobs, it's not like these companies are dangling the people jobs in front of them. They're legitimately saying if this thing passes, it will cause them this much economic downturn, basically. And they won't be able to provide these people a job in the first place because it's not going to be economically feasible to do so. It would just be too expensive. They would have to pay these people too much because they're considered full-time employees. But I do actually agree on one point that you brought up, which is the fact that it's an essentially new type of worker. I agree with you. It's a new type of worker. They aren't employees and they aren't independent contractors. And I think we definitely have to develop some sort of new infrastructure for these workers and to have good protections for them. But to classify them as employees is also not a great way to operate considering how different this sort of technology is compared to what we consider the standard employee. So I'm with you that they need to have more protections and that we should redefine to give people protections under whatever new name you want to define this type of worker. The final thing I will say is I think we, it's great to end on a note of agreement that this is a new type of worker and we're trying to figure out how to regulate it. I just think there is an inherent conflict of interest that the people who are regulating the jobs are Uber, Postmates, and all of the people who stand to benefit from their exploitation. So if somebody's going to regulate it, let it be the government, not themselves. Fair enough. I think at the end of the day, this is really, as I said, one that's all over the map. And it is confusing. I forgot who said it, but this is a very kind of confusing argument here with both sides kind of claiming they have the workers on their side. So we'll end up seeing what happens. But I don't doubt at all this will be the last conversation we'll have on gig workers because it's only growing. And if the pandemic had not hit, some of the expectations and numbers of gig workers were extraordinarily high as far as a market share of labor. Now moving on to Proposition 23. We're almost there, but California really likes to put a lot on the ballot. So we're, we're almost there. Thank you for sticking with us for this far. Prop 23, I'll just do a quick summary of, of one, because it already happened. In the last election cycle, we had an identical proposition around dialysis. For anyone who isn't aware, 
Dialysis is the process for which people who have kidney failure get their blood basically cleaned. What the liver would do, it's done by a machine, and you would go into a dialysis clinic. And this proposition, just like the one previously, basically states very clearly that each dialysis center would have to have a certain amount of workers and a bunch of regulations around it, saying, if you want to operate as a dialysis clinic, we're going to raise the bars to what you have. You have to have workers, you have to do just a bunch of regulations that I really is not worth the time getting into here. But at the end of the day, I'm not a huge fan of this proposition simply because the majority of people really aren't authorities on dialysis clinics. I know that sounds really sad in the sense that like, yes, I should have a voice on everything. And you should if you care about it. But at the end of the day, propositions are really the matters that concern a lot of people. And I feel like something kind of like the regulation of dialysis clinics really isn't best spent on a ballot. That said, I would say there's, if you want to look into it, there's a lot of ad money being put into this and a bunch of endorsements on either side. But the main point I kind of took away is really just do your research onto what these regulations are in the sense of if they're providing extra care or not. This debate centers in my mind a lot around is having an extra worker and all these extra protections actually going to help patients down the road or is it going to cause dialysis clinics to close? That's the main choice you kind of have to make in your head. I'll leave that one up to you also again because this is a really niche issue that I don't think voters really ought to be voting on, in my opinion. Thomas is also letting me know now that $100 million has been spent against this proposition, which is an absurd amount of money for dialysis clinic propositions. But nonetheless, we only have two left, so we're going to move on now to Proposition 24. Now, Proposition 24 concerns privacy protection, specifically internet privacy protections. Andrew Yang has actually had a bunch to say on this, oddly enough, because he just chimes in on every nuanced, weird political conversation. But Without further ado, let's hop into it by going to Thomas first. So Thomas, can you explain what Prop 24 covers, what it doesn't cover, and some of the kind of basic facts around it? Yeah, it's kind of like a plethora of things. It's kind of like a follow-up to to California's like most recent data privacy law. So basically, it's prohibiting businesses from holding on to your data for like longer than necessary. It's sort of upping the fine for violation of children's privacy rights to $7,500. It's creating a new state agency to enforce privacy laws. It's reducing the number of businesses that have to comply. It used to be $25 million or above in terms of revenue, but now it's 100,000 households. Like you buy and sell the data of 100,000 households per year. And that's pretty much it. So it has a whole bunch of loopholes. There's a lot of issues with it, but that's like the general just outlook. Thanks. Jackson, I know data has specifically been an interest of yours recently and data privacy surrounding that. So give us a bit of kind of overview of what's going on here. So like Thomas said, this is kind of like a quilt of different data privacy laws. It's largely seen as a way to gut the California Consumer Privacy Act of 2018 that was like a monumental step in the pursuit of data rights. I'll highlight one clause that I personally am against, which is the proposition creates a new agency in California. It's a $10 million agency called the California Privacy Protection Agency. And what that does is it's supposed to protect our rights. Currently, it's regulated by the California Attorney General's office. I am a huge proponent of letting people themselves litigate for their own privacy rights, and that's not allowed under this proposition. So if you feel that your data rights and your privacy has been violated, then ultimately, in a world under this proposition, you would not personally be the one suing for it or you know, litigating over your privacy rights. I think that's really important to mention. And the final thing, and this is perhaps the most important one, 
is the idea of pay for privacy schemes, which are enabled under this law, or a lot of data rights activists see it as being enabled under this law. And that's the basically an anti-net neutrality position that people will be able to pay premiums to companies in order to get their data preserved and not shared. So what we want to see is for this to happen to, for everyone and have no financial barriers to having data security. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I would kind of like the, one of the previous propositions we talked about, take a little bit of a look at some of what's going on here. But yeah, it, it just deals with data privacy in a whole bunch of different ways. So something to keep in mind. We are finally making our way to the last proposition on the ballot this election. I'm really thankful for anyone who's still listening here and for our panelists, because it's been a bit of a roller coaster. So Proposition 25, which is the last one, deals with cash bail. And for anyone who closely follows California state politics, which is basically this group, you probably would have recognized that a year or two ago, we had a bill passed by Senator Hertzberg in the state Senate to eliminate cash bail, which basically would mean that instead of putting up money when you're arraigned for court, they would simply evaluate whether you should be remanded, which means put in prison or be able to go home. So this proposition deals with that. So to get some of the facts on this, we're going to head to Adam. Thank you, Jared. So before we get into the actual text of this proposition, I think it would be important to define what our cash bail system looks like in California. So what a cash bail system is, is when people are criminal suspects and they're detained, pre-trial, they are able to get out of detention. And how they're able to do that is through a cash bond. So what they do is they pay this to the courts and the courts will hold it until they come back for their trial date. It's basically a method to keep people from running away before their trial happens. It, it makes sure that people actually show up to their trial date and then they're giving the money back. However, most people don't have the money to post bail. So what's happened is there's an entire bail bond industry that has been created in which you can pay 10% of what the bail would be to a bail bond company. And then a bail bond company will give the courts the bail on your behalf, and then you can get out based on that. So the bail bond companies have had some run-ins in the past with uh, just the public as a whole. People aren't all too happy about how the bail bond industry operates. One of the main concerns is they have their kind of own private police that goes after people if they don't show for their trial, because essentially that's their money they're losing. So they kind of run their own police systems that goes after people if they don't show for trial. So the public wasn't too happy about that. So what happened was SB 10, sponsored by Senator Bob Hertzberg, was passed. And this was actually Governor Jerry Brown's time. So August of 2018, when Jerry Brown was still governor. And what SB 10 did was it made California the first state to end cash bail. So there would be no more cash bail. And instead, you would be let out on a risk assessment. And basically, what SB 10 did was it created a new pre-trial risk assessment committee and then they would determine the risk of a suspect not showing the trial and then they would let them out based on that risk so obviously high risk detainees wouldn't be let out low risk detainees would be let out that type of thing however this system has actually never been implemented in california although the the bill was passed because soon after it was passed this veto referendum started cooking up in the works and so what this proposition is, what a veto referendum is, is basically a bill was passed, SB 10 was passed, and interest groups 
basically through funding, through advertising, got together enough voters to say, you know, we actually don't want this to be a law. So we as citizens are going to try to veto this law through this referendum on the ballot. So what a yes vote here would do is to still support SB 10 and say, yeah, we're getting rid of the cash bail system. And a no vote would repeal SB 10 and keep the cash bail system around. Thank you. That was a really good overview, I think, about a a lot of things here. So very helpful. I will note here that the ACLU, which has kind of been seen as the champion for people kind of caught in the criminal justice system, is against SB 10. And I'm going to head to Jackson as to why that might be. So I will start by saying I know I've come out with a lot of strong opinions on the previous propositions we've discussed. This is my first time voting, and I still have no idea how I'm going to vote on Prop 25. It's simultaneously a win-win and a lose-lose. Basically, the question is, do we want to have cash bail, or should we start to have an algorithm and judges determine who gets bail? So what that means is, currently, right, you pay money, as Adam discussed, to not stay in prison before your trial. Under a world where Prop 25 is passed, For people who are being charged with a misdemeanor, they would simply go to a judge and plead their case as to why they shouldn't be held in custody before the trial. And for people who are getting charged for anything above a misdemeanor, they're going to be using an algorithm that assesses the risk of A, how dangerous they are, and B, how likely they are to flee the trial. So on one hand, we have the inherent racism and classism in a system that encourages money to be spent to not be in the custody of the prison system. And on the other hand, we have judges who are also inherently biased working for a court that has systematically imprisoned people of color and algorithms that have usually when used by the government also targeted the most vulnerable communities. So it seems simultaneously like a lose-lose. The reasons the ACLU opposes it are because of the, you know, the inherent bias in judges and algorithms. So it's really just a toss up at this point. Do we want to see discrimination on the basis of wealth and class or discrimination on the basis of race? And it does not seem like there's a right answer in my book. Yeah, I think that's where a lot of people, especially on the further left, are kind of trying to weigh here because it is a a win-win and a lose-lose. I always saw this to an extent as that the criminal justice system is just so broken at this point that really any sort of measure is going to cause problems, unfortunately. And I guess there is no kind of ideal way to adjudicate people independent of class and race in this way. Well, with that, we have made it. I hope you learned something out of this. And maybe this only made voting harder for you. I hope that's not the case. But in some cases, I think there a lot of these props are microcosms of larger political issues. And it's just one solution that a lot of people have come to. And then you as the voter get to actually put your say in it. So I think it's a really unique system, even though there's a lot of them and a lot of them should be there. It's a really unique way for the average voter to kind of voice their opinion on certain political issues. If you had any questions on what you heard, want to share your own thoughts, feel free to email us. We have new emails now. It's info at contestedpolitics.com. Or if you wanted to respond to something me or Adam said in specific, you can email us at jared at contestedpolitics.com and adam at contestedpolitics.com. With that, I really thank all four of you for coming on. I know this was a marathon of a recording, but it was really, really helpful. And with that, uh, we'll see you all later. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Contested. If you like what you heard, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play. I can't say thank you enough to all of our panelists for today's show, and they all are teenagers who are doing some amazing, amazing work politically. So feel free to check all of their work out and follow them. They're just amazing people. Going forward, we're really going to try to grow Contested and make sure it can reach as many people as possible. So if you're interested in helping us publicize or have any cool uh, connections to news outlets or people who just might have any interest, the biggest way you can say thank you to us is by sharing our episodes and spreading our audience greater and greater every day. And for all of you who are doing that now, thank you. And until next time, thank you for helping us understand politics together.